the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. This is one of over 500 programs that we have done since the beginning of the pandemic, um, bringing you our ideas and uh, many authors so that you can enjoy the Commonwealth Club in spite of the fact that we are not open. So uh, we will be opening soon to some uh, programs, uh, but not quite yet. So uh, the first thing is uh, welcome both uh, Jeffrey Kluger, the author of um, this novel, Holdout, and Nicole Stott, uh, an astronaut. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about both of them. So Jeffrey Kluger uh, is celebrating today his 25th uh, year, at 25th anniversary as being an editor-at-large at Time magazine. Um, he's done over 40 cover stories for them and many other projects. Um, he's also the uh, co-author of the Apollo 13 book that led to the movie Apollo 13 and another dozen books or so. Um, and uh, he has this new, his first uh, fiction uh, book um, for adults, uh, Holdout. Is that correct? And so, and Nicole is a, a, an actual astronaut. Um, this, this, uh, this book is about a female astronaut. The main character, Wally Beckwith, is a female astronaut. And uh, so Nicole is in here to uh, check on the veracity of everything that Jeffrey has put in his fiction. <laughs> um, and she, she has over 100 uh, days in space. And um, in addition to that, she's going to she's in the middle of writing a book, I think, uh, Back to Earth, uh, about your time and your experiences from up above. Um, you spent time as a, uh, a space aquanaut that is uh, in deep under the ocean. Um, so in these events, we have uh, two experts. Um, and I really enjoyed this novel. And I want, I'm looking forward to this conversation myself. So, Nicole, you want to lead it off? All right. <laughs> Thank you, George. Really, really appreciate the introduction and the opportunity to be here. Um, and thanks to everyone who's joining us. Uh, I, I personally, Jeff, I am really looking forward to this conversation because, first of all, I always enjoy speaking with you. But in this case, I get to be the one asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little bit different scenario. Um, um, maybe, maybe you know. Why don't we start out? You you have built, I think, a wonderful career on science writing, and as I've had the pleasure um, to experience, um, and on a love um, for all things space, I think. But now, this is your first fictional novel, as uh, George mentioned. Um, so, a couple related questions. First of all, what drew you to wanting to shift to writing fiction? And did you find it very different to the kind of writing you do kind of on a routine basis for time? That's a really good question. And in some respects, a story for time or a nonfiction book or a novel 
all have to have sort of the same narrative machinery. They need a beginning, they need a middle, they need an end, they need stakes, they need compelling characters, they need an arc that will, you know, sort of take you from the beginning and uh, give you some stakes that you know are in play in the story, and then you hope you stick the landing. So in some respects, uh, whether it's writ small, you know, a 500-word story for time, or a 150,000-word book, um, it's all in some respects the same thing, just on larger sort of fractalized scales. Um, writing nonfiction, writing Apollo 13, um, in some ways was um, very novelistic in itself because history gave us such an operatic yeah. tale. I mean, what could have been more Greek than this? You know, the fact that, I mean, they even named their ship Odyssey, for goodness sake. Um, you know, what could have been more Greek than these three people setting out, having this accident, and then having to find a way to survive when they were such a great... Um, and killing distance from home. So I often told myself when I was writing that story, um, history has already written the tale for me. All I have to do is take the threads of the great tapestry of history and weave it into my own somewhat smaller narrative. Um, and that was a way, that was actually just the way that I would calm myself when I would panic and think I have no idea how to write a book. <laughs> so I will just trust that, 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 nonfiction has done it for me. In the case of a novel, obviously, it's both more liberating and more terrifying because you are walking a rope without a net. There is no history beneath you. There is no actual fact pattern that you can follow, which is one of the reasons that I reported so heavily um, before I did the story. It was one of the reasons that I interviewed you and that I interviewed Marsha Ivins and interviewed Mike Massimino and Ron Garin and Ken Bowersox and so many other fine astronauts because I wanted to be able to say, I am not an astronaut. I am writing fiction, but I want my fiction to be true to fact. So while it was fiction. It's still very much like writing a nonfiction story for time and very much like writing Apollo 13. I gave myself narrow guardrails within which I had to stay. And that both kept the story honest, kept the science honest, kept the human behavior honest, and also helped me feel a little bit safe. It's like I wrote the story. I rode the bike with training wheels because I had a lot of good, solid research behind me. Well, that, I mean, the way you just described the experience you had with Apollo 13, I think is really interesting. You know, here was this, you know, historical, you know, all of it fact. Um, and, and what you said about this story of a challenge, of survival, uh, you know, how we get through those kinds of things. I think the same, you know, underlied the story here and holdout as well, and, you know, in one way or another. So that's, uh, I, I really look forward to, you know, hearing more from people who read it and kind of find those parallels in the way that it works. And um, one of the things that I really enjoyed, as you just mentioned, about the book is the way that you obviously grounded it so much, you know, in real life, real science, um, to a degree, I think, in the way you created the characters, you know, on real astronauts. Um, so how did, you know, besides just talking, you know, speaking with Astra, how did you do your research for the book? Are there, you know, and are there any kind of favorite stories 
maybe some that didn't make it into the book with uh, the research that influenced how you ended up writing it? Well, a lot of it, I was very fortunate that back in 2015 and 2016, um, Time produced our Year in Space Emmy Award winning, I must add, Year yes. in Space uh, series about Scott Kelly's uh, year aboard the International Space Station. Um, and in reporting that, in shooting that, and in writing about that, I got to travel to a lot of the venues that are included in the book. So I did go to the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. I did go to Karaganda and Jezbiskan, two landing sites in in Kazakhstan. I did go to the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center outside of Moscow. I went to Moscow Mission Control. I went to the Kennedy Space Center and the Johnson Space Center. So all of these venues in which the story unfolded were places that I had seen. So I was fortunate that I was able, when I went to those places, I had no idea I was going to write Hold Out. But once I was there, I I was able to retain so much sort of detailed, so much pointillistic information and, and, and human moments, so many visual scenes. You know, there's, there's a scene in the airport in Karaganda when the astronauts come back from space and they're welcomed by native girls in, in traditional Kazakh costumes and they're offered fruit and dates and fried dough and of course astronauts coming back from space have a hard enough time standing up yes. as you know <laughs> never mind uh holding down whatever it was they last ate when they were in space they're suddenly back in a 1g environment so i'm sure while the the local girls offering the fruits and nuts and dates mean well i think it's very hard for the astronauts but it was a very sweet ceremony and it was the kind of thing that I was able to incorporate into the book, um, just something I happened to see, happened to be present for, and I could write about it for the book. So there was a lot of happenstantial reporting that I didn't even realize was book reporting when it was happening. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's really um, important. And in, in what you just described is that you know these were all things that were going on as a result of you know, this crew coming home, kind of the traditions that are in place around it. And yet embedded in all that really is, is, is the human story of it. You know, this relationship between the Kazakh people and the astronauts and cosmonauts and, you know, their families and, you know, kind of the artisan cultural things that are going along with it, you know, really being about, about the people, you know, almost inconsequential that it was space stuff, you know, <laughs> in the end. So, and, and in the, in Holdout, I think that character, not just of the places and the experiences, but of the people themselves come through. I mean, I, I felt like a, a familiarity and, you know, in some of them. Um, I also felt, uh, you know, a real passion in your writing of this story. I, I mean, I hope it's, it's, it's what you intended. And, and I got this sense that, you know, the underlying motivation for it was something very important to you, you know, that's more than a great read and work of fiction, but also, you know, a call to action in some way for the reader. You know, when someone asks you what's holdout about, I mean, what do you tell them? I think it's significant that it's not just about space. Right, right. Well, I, I tell them what a friend of mine, when I first mentioned that I had written, that I was writing this book, 
and it was about a woman who refused to come home from the International Space Station. A dear friend of mine, not meaning it denigratingly, said, that's a post-it note idea. You can write it on a single post-it note. That She meant that in a good way. You know, yeah. she meant it's a solid, simple idea. Now all you have to do is write the other 108,000 words. Yes, yeah, yeah. so the why. The why, <laughs> yes. And the why was huge. And that was a real challenge for me because I knew what I wanted her to do when she was aboard the spacecraft. I knew the kind of defiant stand I wanted her to take. I knew the kind of high principle I wanted to infuse in my character. Now the only thing I had to figure out was for what is that high principle being expended? To what is that high principle being dedicated? And I had a lot of reasons that were that didn't quite land. There was one early version, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, this was during the early years of the Trump administration, and in a, the earliest version of the book, the first version of the book, uh, she was in space not to prevent the burning of the Amazon and the dislocation of the indigenous tribes. She was in space to prevent the construction of a trench, not a wall, a trench at the southern border of the United States. Now, it was a nice story, and it was told well, I thought, and I wrote the entire book that way. Um, but it was found to be too of the moment and too political and too ideological and too evanescent, really. I mean, that story of the wall, who talks about the wall anymore? You know, here we are just three years, four years in after just a year after the Trump administration, and nobody talks about that anymore. So I had to gouge out that entire portion of the book and start all over and think, what is it that she should really be motivated by? And at that point, saving the Amazon occurred to me because the Amazon is in profound danger. The Amazon is for the planet an existential risk. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a somewhat shopworn figure of speech now to call the Amazon the lungs of the planet, but the Amazon very much is the lungs of the planet. It is where the majority of carbon dioxide is exchanged into oxygen which feeds the planet, which feeds the atmosphere. And we are at the point that almost 25% of the Amazon has been burned away. Now we lose one New Jersey every year, basically, in the Amazon. And when we reach that tipping point of 25%, we'll reach a point at which the Amazon won't any longer be able to evaporate enough water into the atmosphere to sustain the rainfall that comes back down and in turn sustains the Amazon. So we'll reach a tipping point at which the Amazon will die of its own accord. In addition, there are one million indigenous tribes people who call that land their home and they're being displaced. They're being, their land is being stolen from them. They're being scattered. They're in many cases being killed. There were 11 million indigenous tribes people in pre-Columbian times. We're down to less than 10% of that now. That to me felt like a profoundly important story and something more powerful than just domestic politics. Who's gonna build a wall or a trench at, at the Southern border? Yeah, I think it, and the, the way you presented it is very, um you know, really provides this sense of interconnectivity in, in all of it, you know, planet, people, all of it, you know, I'm pretty passionate about that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, 
And I think those relationships we can develop with the characters are really are really important too. Um, I mean, like I said, I found myself really relating to them in the story, feeling some familiarity to them. You know, not just Wally as the main character, but the others as well. Even some that were kind of on the periphery, you know, that came in and out or were making decisions and things. Uh, and and I, I think that's you know that that holds you in the story. Um, because you care what you care what the people care about in the story as well, and um, you know this this isn't a spoiler at all. You know, right at the beginning of the novel, Wally, the you know your book's heroine, you know um, commandeers if that's the word the ISS when there's you know some trouble going on, and you know I think I have my idea of how plausible that might be, and you know depending on the crew you're with, again the character of of those people, um, can you tell us just a little bit about Wally as this character? How you know how did she come to be? Was it really, you know, based on these people that you spoke with, little bits and pieces of what you've kind of gathered through your time reporting on space and the people of space? And you know, what inspired her for you? Well, I have never met an astronaut quite like Wally. I've never met an astronaut quite as strong-willed as Wally, but I have spoken to an astronaut quite as strong-willed as Wally, and he was also named Wally. He was Wally Shara, one of the original seven astronauts from whom our Wally, whose real name is Belka, but uh, a Russian name that her parents borrowed from a Russian space pup because they thought the space pup was tough and gritty and they wanted their daughter to be tough and gritty. Um, but Wally picked the nickname Wally after Wally Shara, who was one of the original seven astronauts. He also um, engineered uh, the closest there has been to a mutiny in space um, during the Apollo 7 mission when his crew was doing was uh, flying the maiden flight of the Apollo spacecraft, and just a little over 20 months before, the Apollo 1 spacecraft had killed three American astronauts in the tragic launch pad fire in 1967. So flash forward 20 months, Wally Sharon and his crew are flying that what seemed like a very dangerous spacecraft on a, an 11-day orbital mission, and all he wanted to do was be able to test that spacecraft, test fly that spacecraft. The flight engineers on the ground wanted to fill the mission with experiments and all kinds of cosmic observations yeah, okay. and biological experiments, and Wally said no and essentially tore up the flight plan and mutinied. Um, Wally Beckwith similarly decided she was going to stand on principle that she was going to, whenever she was in a position in which she could do what was right, what was honorable. Um, I mentioned that Wally was, I mentioned in the book that Wally was a Naval Academy graduate who so admired the Academy's 83 word honor code that she laminated it and kept it in yeah. her pocket. And she felt she would always do what was honorable. The other thing that motivated Wally was, and this is a bit of a spoiler, a bit of a backstory spoiler, but she was a naval aviator. And uh, some years before she uh, flew into flew in space, she was flying a mission over Afghanistan, over uh, the city of Kandahar. And she saw a situation developing on the ground that she believed was going to result in an attack on a, a, a school, on a school, a girls' school, 
um, and she believed was going to result in the death of the children in the school. Uh, but she was ordered to break off. She was told she was low on fuel. She was ordered to break off. She obeyed that order. She flew back to her ship. And when she got back there, she found that, yes, the school children had been attacked and that school children had been killed. And she vowed at that moment, if she were ever again in a position when she had her eyes on a place or a situation in which human beings were in danger, she would never break off again. This time she would do what she could to save the people in, who were in danger. Well, once she's aboard the space station, she is in that position. So to her, she must make good on that pledge she made herself when she was flying over Kandahar that day. Yeah, I think, you know, I, and I hope people who, who read the book agree that that, you know, she did hold, you know, she holds true to that, you know, you, you facilitated that in your writing and, and it, and it came across completely, um, you know, not predictable, but when things happen, you're like, oh, yes, she, you know, you know, she didn't, she didn't, you know, flounder, wimp out on that one, you know, she held, held true to it, um, which was, scary sometimes too, you know, in, in the story. And, and one of the things I love too, you know, when we talk about, you know, could this have happened, you know, kind of the reality of that. I love the portrayal of the characters in a way that you understand that they know each other. You understand that they, um, you know, they've not just trained together and are flying in space and doing the technical aspects of the job, but they, they under, they understand each other, you know, kind of like family, you know, almost. And, and there's a real feeling of that. There's a, there's a warmth in it too. And then there's a trust that comes, you know, through the characters, you know, especially as hatches are closing between them that you're like, wow, you know, you believe that could happen. And I mean, I believe that that could happen, you know? <laughs> which is a cool thing when, you know, when you've been up there and you're thinking, man, would this ever really happen? Well, it could happen. Yeah. Well, and that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to create a real, as you say, familial connection between Wally and her two Russian um, crewmates. And one of them is a veteran. He's based on Gennady Basin or, or on um, uh, Gennady Padalka. Oh, he was your commander. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that. So he was based on Gennady Padalka, who tried to get a thousand days in space, the golden thousand, um, and he yeah. didn't quite make it. And my uh, character, Vasily Zhirov, is also trying to get a thousand days in space. And he's the great space veteran, the great space hero. Um, and also with Wally is a young rookie named Yulian Lebedev. So they form this close bond and know each other and care for each other and admire each other. And when you train together, as you would know, you know, vastly better than, my, than I, when you train together that closely for that long, you learn one another's moves, you learn one another's temperaments, you learn one another's ways and thoughts and impulses and feelings. And when those hatches are closing, when the two injured Russians are leaving the spacecraft, leaving the, um, leaving the, the space station and leaving Wally behind, I did want it to be credible. I wanted it to feel like they knew they could not change her mind and she knew that they understood her well enough 
that they would let her follow her star and follow her story and embark on the solitary mission that she had she had chosen to embark on. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love that there were, I mean, there were subtleties in it too, you know, just, you know, kind of words that are used or, you know, the way the, I'm, I'm not going to, there's one line, I'm just not even going to say it because people need to read the book and, and, you know, and get that line. Hopefully you know what it is and the way she responds to things that I think is so good. And um, that, you know, beyond just um, understanding that this is what she would want, want to do, what she needs to do, I think, and them allowing, you know, that them stepping away on, you know, undocking. Um, I think they trust that she can handle it too. I think there's a trust that they're not leaving somebody who's going to flail there and not, you know, not be able to, to handle what they're, you know, about to get into. It's, um, which I think is a very strong um, message to send, you know, between those people too. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, all right. So um, a little bit of a shift here Um, and just in the space world in general, um, you know, you, this is a little shift to like the more, I think of folks, I mean, I get your newsletter, which I highly recommend people to sign up for too. It's really, it's really great, you know, um, to, to get a, sometimes a, a different twist on the stories that are out there in, in the space world too. And, and you've been reporting uh, like others, I would say quite a bit in the recent weeks about, you know, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin launches and what's up in the whole commercial space flight world. And clearly the, you know, the tech side of space and the business world are hot on, on space right now. Um, there's a lot more focus seems to be on, you know, quickly developing new ways to bring more and more, civilians, more and more of humanity, I think, to space. Um, so, you know, any thoughts on, I, I, I guess, like both the short and the longer term implications of all this kind of thing going on? Well, I think the short term implications are that there could be a boutique commercial market for these suborbital trips to space. Um, you know, Branson has proven now that his spaceship works. Um, Bezos has proven now that his spaceship works, although, of course, all they've proven is that they work once. Um, they haven't proven that they can scale up and be a safe and and realistic um, source of revenue and source of entertainment for paying customers. Um, it is an essentially risky business. Um flying a rocket or a rocket plane in the case of, um, of Virgin Galactic is an order of magnitude faster and more dangerous than flying an airplane. Um, but the technology does work. However, the technology, um, is still, uh, specialized enough that it's exceedingly expensive. So Virgin Galactic costs a quarter of a million dollars for a seat, even if the, an economy of scale allowed them to bring that down by 80%, you're still talking about $50,000 for a 10 minute vacation. Uh, there are not a whole lot of people who can afford that price tag. Um, similarly, uh, the Bezos missions. So I think at the best, these will be boutique missions. I think I'm more impressed with uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX um, and what they are developing. Now, they're developing a commercial, uh, a, a private passenger um, business model as well. We're reporting heavily on the Inspiration4 mission, which will take place in September when 
for uh, non-professional astronauts um, go aloft uh, with four seats paid for by Jared Isaacman, the billionaire uh, CEO of Shift for Payments, an online payment company. Um, and they will be, this will be a real three-day orbital mission. Um, and its goal is to raise $200 million for the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. So it's both for a good cause and it's helping to expand the commercial space industry. I think in the short run, um, uh, Musk can put together a business in which millionaires and billionaires do pay money to fly on his spacecraft. But I think in the much longer term, um, the U.S. is trying to get to the moon with our our Artemis program. I am a full-throated enthusiast of the Artemis program. I am a full-throated enthusiast of NASA's mission to put the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon by the middle of this decade. Um, and I think with the right funding from Congress, with the right, right support from government, that can happen. But I also feel that the more experience Elon Musk has in flying crews and in building um, his Starship spacecraft, which is intended to fly to the moon and then onto Mars, I think um, the private sector could give the public sector a run for its money. And I wouldn't be entirely surprised if Musk beat America to the moon. Um, I would be impressed and a little surprised, but not entirely surprised. Well, I, you know, I... I'm personally looking forward to how all of these uh, evolve over time. You know, I, I think about uh, Bezos' motivation, which, you know, I think it's very short term with, with his model that it's just about suborbital flights. I think ultimately it's how do we get off the plane? How do we bring, you know, these things that are causing problems like what you describe in the rainforest even off the planet. So we're not having to, you know, to treat, you know, our life support system the way, you know, that it has been um, anymore. I think I, I would love to see more and more of that presented uh, about that. You know, I think Virgin Galactic, they're looking ultimately at a, how do you get from point A to point B model um, evolves from their, you know, Virgin Airways kinds of things. Um, but I love what you said too, about the public and the private aspects of this. I think one thing that doesn't get you know, promoted as much as it should is this public-private partnership that's going on. You know, especially you know, you use SpaceX and Elon as the example. I mean, the the real the real thing that has like vitalized that has allowed it, I think, to accelerate the way it has has been the the relationship between NASA and SpaceX in facilitating that. You know, not just from a funding standpoint, but from a um, requirements you know, legacy lessons learned kind of thing too. And, and I think SpaceX over time has embraced that more and more. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I will just, you know, this, this, this topic, inspiration for, I look at that mission. I'm so excited that you guys, you know, through time are following along with that. I hope we'll get a chance to talk about it from the Space for Art Foundation side and the work we're doing with them too. But um, yeah, you know, but I think, you know, the way you were describing inspiration for this, this crew of four people underlying their mission is this goal of raising money for for St. Jude. Um, you know, clearly that's a goal. It's not just a we're talking about it kind of thing. It is happening. And these people are being trained to fly on this spacecraft. Um, 
I think you've probably met the crew members. They, I believe, are the people to be doing this on, on this first flight. Isn't it cool? And I think it parallels in some ways the story in Holdout as well. You know, this, this motivation, this greater good kind of thing. You know, I know there's not a direct correlation between Amazon and um, raising money for a children's, you know, hospital. But I think, I think it really does um, play out kind of the same way. About fighting on the side of the angels. And yep. in both cases, you know, they, what is being done is an unalloyed good. I'm going to turn tables on you and ask you, can you talk for just one minute about how the Artist Foundation, the work you folks are doing with, um, with Inspiration4? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So um, the Space for Art Foundation, our, our little tagline, our motto is that we are uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art. So we've built over time, um, working with kids around the world, um, you know, space themed art therapy programs. You know, there's an example of one back here, this um, this art spacesuit, which I will just say are um, the people I will call the spacesuit company, ILC Dover, uh, have been partnering with us since the beginning to, to sew these um, kids' artwork together into these beautiful suits. But with Inspiration4, we reached out to the crew and just said, hey, we'd really like to work with you guys to find a way to connect the kids in the hospital through some art projects with what's going on in space, kind of, you know, how can they be part of the mission? And um, in doing that, we've provided or are providing some really cool uh, kind of mission bags to the kids where they'll have their space for art on the bag to create their own artwork associated with the mission. And there'll be some goodies inside too. And then we've, um, we've created these art mission jackets for the crew members, four of them. Um, they're already at SpaceX, uh, and the crew are creating some of their own artwork on those suits, on their Space for Art. And we're hoping to see those jackets in space with the crew, and then they will be auctioned off to raise money um, in support of this $200 million goal, but in particular targeted at St. Jude's Child Life and Art Therapy programs. So pretty exciting. That is a really exciting project, and it is... <laughs> Again, it is fighting the good fight and doing the good work. I think so. It's kind of like, you know, I think I've told you this before, Jeff. I feel like I went to space so I could do this kind of thing. It's like my, you know, the next mission in life. But uh, all right. So I think we need to move to Q&A. But I, I just want one one more question before we go, because I, I don't know if we'll get to answer it um, along the way. So as we close out, like our part of this conversation, you know, aside from the awesomeness of Holdout coming out this week, you know, earlier this week and making its presence known, um, you know, the I Inspiration4 activities that you got going on and the, you know, the promotion to go along with the book as well. Any projects that you're excited about that we should know about that you've got going on, um, you know, maybe a chaser to Holdout or, you know, something new in the book world? Um, what can we look for? Well, I am juggling two or three different book ideas. Two of them are space related. I am thinking that depending how Holdout does, there could be more of a story for Wally Beckwith. There could be a, a, a second chapter, a second life for Wally. Um, certainly the private space industry does exist and Wally yep. could find a home there. Um, and so could the other characters in the book. Um, there's a completely different uh, space book that I am thinking of uh, tackling. This one would have to do with exobiology, with life in space, wow. but it would not be 
you know, 25th century, you know, monsters invade. This would be very much uh, anchored in what current knowledge is about exobiology. And in the same way that I anchored, um, that I anchored, uh, pulled out in the way the space station operates in current space science. I'd want to keep this anchored in science as we know it. And then there's a completely different book idea I'm thinking of that takes place in Shanghai in the Second World War, and it has nothing to do with space at all, but it's a novel that I've been thinking of doing for a long time. So I'm moving in three directions at once and just trying to catch my breath. Well, we'll look forward to it. And, you know, God bless you, man, because I just got done with my first book and I, I am in awe of the, the talent and patience and all of it that goes along with, um, with writing a book. Um, the fact that you just beautifully deliver to us all the time on a regular basis, you know, stories that um, are just so beautifully written. I'm, I, yeah. Good on you. <laughs> I was feeling pain. <laughs> but, you know, the pleasure is the pain, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay, so I don't know. George, are you helping us with questions or um, yes. how do we and go? That was, that was great, uh, Jeff <laughs> and Nicole. Um, so so I'd, like I'd like to remind our audience that they're listening to Jeff and Kugel, the author of Holdout. Um, um, discussing, discussing the, the novel, novel that he wrote, he's also the author of Apollo 13, and, and it, it was just interviewed by Nicole Stott, uh, one, one of the U.S. NASA, NASA astronauts, astronauts uh, spent more than 100 days, days in space, has, has her own book coming out back, back to Earth. Earth. So, uh, so uh, and I'd, I'd also like to um, thank, thank the Bernard Osher Foundation, which is part of our Good Lit series, and they support that. So the, so the first, first question, question uh, from, from the audience, audience that I think, I think is uh, very uh, interesting, interesting as for you, Jeff, Jeff of course. Uh, if, if you could go to space right, right now, would you? you? And would, would you want, want to go to the International Space Station, Station the Moon, Deep, deep, deep Space, or, or somewhere else? else? <laughs> well, here, the way, one of the ways I always ask this question is, I have never been so happy in my life as to not be invited to do something because <laughs> I don't know that I have the grit and the wherewithal of someone like Nicole actually to climb inside of a booster and take off somewhere. I've often said my favorite way to go to space would be to place, be placed under general anesthetic for liftoff and reentry and just get to wake up on the International Space Station or on the moon. Um, my destination of choice absolutely though would be the moon the moon has held a certain rhapsodic mystery for me um since having grown up in the era of uh the earliest space race uh, my earliest memory um to which i can affix a date this is going to date me this is going to age me but it was uh october 4th 1957 the date sputnik was launched i was three and a mm -hmm. half years old i remember standing on the front lawn of my parents house um looking for sputnik uh my parents told me that we actually saw it i'm sure it was just a commuter plane flying over <laughs> had to get my older Good brother parents. and me yeah they had to get us back inside and into bed um but uh, the moon has always held a sort of magical spot for me, and the idea of being able to leave prints in moon dust um, would be as rich and wonderful a way uh, as I could imagine to leave a legacy. So that would be my place to go. Well, there's a follow-up question for you on that, since you were right 
uh, you grew up with the Apollo mission with Kennedy's uh, statement and all that. I mean, you were a child, but that's the time to ask. Um, did you think at that time that the adventure of going to space would somehow divert attention away from war and the other things, all the, all the destruction that was happening in the 60s? Do you think that that would be like an alternative to war? Is that part of your enthusiasm? I thought it would be, well, it's funny because the it was the Cold War, of course, that was the animating engine behind the space race. Um, mm -hmm. It was the animus between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the fear of one or the other of the countries gaining a foothold in the high ground of space and gaining some time kind of tactical advantage over the other country that drove the the frantic push into space and drove both countries' willingness to allocate so much of their federal treasury uh, to space travel. Um, back then, um, the U.S. Uh, spent about 4% of its budget, of its federal budget on space. Today, that figure is 0.4%. So mm -hmm. it's 10 times as great, a, it was 10 times as great a share then. So in some respects, paradoxically, the very threat of war is what kept us on uh, kept us on the path into space. But yes, there was a part of me that believed once you stand outside yourself, um, once you stand outside of the planet and look back on the planet, there can be a transformation that comes over you, and you see the world as as the spacecraft that it is, and you see us mm -hmm. all as the passengers aboard that spacecraft that we are. Nicole is much more familiar with this than we are because we haven't experienced it. And Nicole has written about the idea of the overview effect, which astronauts will talk about, that you look down on the Earth, you see it as fragile, you see it as destructible. You see the our atmosphere, which we think of as this dense, thick blanket that protects us, as in fact this, in, this fine, destructible onion skin of air that's terribly mm. perishable, terribly puncturable, and mm. is in deep need of our caring for it. So I think there can be a certain fellowship, a, a fraternity and a sorority of people who see space, who see the world from space and realize that we have to come together and care for it. So in that sense, yes, I believe and believed that the deeper we get into space, the more we may see ourselves as shipmates and crewmates on the good ship Earth. It's very interesting that in spite of the Cold War and in spite of the antagonism between communism, capitalism, Russia, the United States, something prior to communism that, that um, you know, was predicted by several writers, uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century, that it'd be a Russian-U.S. You know, competition for the 20th century, I find interesting too. But the fact is that during this time, uh, the scientists seem to cooperate between both countries, you know, uh, not, not, and, and even now, um, in spite of all of the animosity that continues, there's still a lot of competition in science, and it's particularly in the International Space Station and other elements. And I think that's great. You want to talk to that a little bit, Nicole, about, because you were there. Um, I, I assume that your, some of your crewmates were Russian. So... Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we look at this life support system we built in space, right, the International Space Station, and, uh, you know, kind of extending on what Jeff was saying, it's like, we build that in space, because we're, we're trying to mimic as best we can what Earth does for us naturally, right, you know, put this mechanical system in space so that the fleshy ones can, you know, live and work there, that we can do the science. And, 
I think it's pretty cool that, you know, for over 20 years now, we've had crews, like single crews, made up of representatives from five international space agencies, 15 different countries, you know, peacefully, successfully working together in this place, you know, orbiting the planet 16 times a day with tens of thousands of people on the ground across those, you know, countries and agencies working together peacefully and successfully to, to make it all happen. And I think of no better example for, for how we should be doing what Jeff said, which is, you know, living like crewmates here on our, on our, our planetary spaceship than, than what we've been doing on the International Space Station. And that doesn't mean that within the space program and across those different agencies that, that there aren't conflicts, there aren't things that we have to work out. Somebody wants to do some kind of science or add a module or you know do something that isn't in the order that the other country might want to do it. But they've established the rules of engagement with that you know greater mission of off the earth for the earth that allows them to come ultimately to an agreement on how to do it. Um, I personally think we're going to continue to travel further off the planet with those kinds of partnerships in place. I think also in terms of the, the war kind of thing, I think that, you know, we've got contentious things going on on the planet across those countries right now, right? But I, I really and truly believe that they are tempered by the relationships we have on the International Space Station. And I am thankful for those partnerships, you know, that are in place that allow us to figure out how to behave better with each other down here on Earth. You know, I'm with Jeff for the moon. Um, you wouldn't have to sedate me either. I'd be hap I'd happily, I'd happily go. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm actually counting on that. Um, you know, in one way or another, I'm, I'm, you know, counting on that that happening in my lifetime. Maybe my son will take me, and my husband there. Um, yeah, happily go there. Great. Okay. So the next uh, one is uh, back to Jeffrey, of course. Uh, what was one of your favorite moments to write in Hold On? One of my favorite moments to write in Hold Out was when I wrote um, I wrote a sort of mystical sense. This was a very small moment in the book um, in which uh, the character of the niece, who is sort of a a surrogate daughter to the astronaut is on the surface of the earth and she lights, uh, she's in the Amazon. She's in the thick of the Amazon. She works for mm -hmm. a group like doctors without borders. Um, so that's another motivation for Wally because she is, um, she is fighting to protect her, her daughter niece who's in the, in the path of danger and the daughter niece character, um, lights fires periodically for Wally to see as the space station flies over. And I wrote a tiny bit of magical realism in that moment um, when, when Sonia, who was the character's name, lights a particular kind of wood. She notices mm -hmm. the orange and she notices the yellow and she notices the white of the fire. And she also notices a high faint shimmer of ultraviolet as if mm -hmm. she were capable of seeing just at the high exiting edge of the visible spectrum where ultraviolet runs off to become invisible x-rays and gamma rays. It's a bit of a superpower she has. It's mentioned mm -hmm. only once or twice in the book, but I loved writing that because to me, to be able to write in a hard science book 
a little tiny bit of magic, a little mm-hmm. tiny bit of mysticism, of something that can't happen, of something that is aphysical, that is a-scientific, gives the book a little whisper of something else, gives it a whisper of romance, gives it a whisper of fantasy. My two earlier novels were both for young adults, and they were mm-hmm. both magical realism novels. Um, so they had a, a fair bit of magic in it, and the books were filled with those sorts of of mystical elements. Um, and I like to say that, you know, being a science reporter, I have to cue extremely closely to the facts. When you're writing magical realism, not only do you not have to deal with the facts, you don't even have to lo- have the laws of physics apply. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. If you want a character to disappear, that character can literally disappear. So I couldn't do that in a book like this, but I liked having that little tiny brush stroke of magical realism in the book. It affects the plot in no way, but it's just a little grace note that I enjoyed writing. And it's very effective because it pulls the family together as if they have a special gene because Wally uh, can, can also see what her niece can see and nobody else. But then I think you, you also let the boy the, the, uh, also see it at one point as if he, he is a natural part of their family. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was very, very good. So now I have a family question for you. You created Wally without children, but then with a child. So you kind of got it both ways. She was both a mother and not a mother. So uh, why, why, why would you make that choice? It was a very interesting way. Do you think it made it easier for her to possibly sacrifice her life? I think, I, I don't know. It was a very interesting choice, though. It, well, in some ways, I think it made it a little bit harder for her to sac- sacrifice her life because while she may have meant to be... To, to not have a child and to give herself over to her career um, and simply be a good niece, a good aunt to her niece. Um, the niece, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, ultimately loses both of her parents. She's orphaned. So she becomes Wally's sort of surrogate child, Wally's stepchild. Um, I think it made the relationship it made Wally a richer character to have this maternal element in her. Um, I will, one of the things that I, I haven't said too often is that in the original version of the book, the very first chapter of the book, Wally, the woman was actually Wally, a man in the very first chapter of the book. I wrote Wally Beckwith spelled the name W A L L Y. And then Mm -hmm. after the first chapter of the book, I thought, this isn't rich enough. This isn't going to be nuanced enough. I think a man will be too tough, a hard-bitten, mercury program type flyboy. I think I need someone with more dimension, with more nuance, with more layers to her character, to her connections to other people. And I think I need a woman to do that. Um, I also wanted Wally to be coming up against not just the structural um, the structural uh, obstacles of the government she's battling and the powerful forces in the Amazon she's battling. I wanted her coming coming up against the structural institutional forces of sexism. So Wally, as a woman, I think became a richer character. I think I was able to give the character more and I was able to learn more from the character. And I don't think I would have had as rich a relationship if the niece 
had been, if Wally had been an uncle and a surrogate father, I think it simply became richer and gentler when she was an aunt and a surrogate mother. That may be stereotyping a little bit. That might be suggesting that women have a unique emotional intelligence that men don't have. But in my experience, women do seem to have a unique emotional <laughs> intelligence men don't have. That's a truth that dare not speak its name. But, you know, in all of my years on the earth, I've found it easier to connect and bond emotionally with women. I've found them more emotionally accessible than men are. So I wrote the character accordingly. I thought it was very effective that she was a, a, a woman uh, uh, playing this game intelligently the way I thought it, it reminded me of Gandhi playing the intelligent game against the uh, the British by doing, being nonviolent, knowing that he could manipulate them with the nonviolence when he couldn't manipulate them with the violence. You have her manipulate all these politicians. You don't like politicians very much, it's pretty clear. In the book, they're the only ones that don't have any really good characters. But, but you 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 make it clear how she manipulates all these guys into doing what she wants to and timing it, everything. Um, and I I think she it reminded me of how Gandhi played the British, um, and I, I thought that was very good. And I I don't think she could have pulled it off if she hadn't been a woman. Um, for that, yeah. That's a very yeah, flattering analogy, jerk. and I will always take a Gandhi analogy. So. I appreciate, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, good. So like, uh, <laughs> if, if it was a man that did it, the, the, the politicians all said that jerk. <laughs> and that would have been the end of it. <laughs> they wouldn't have listened to him. Um, so uh, another question. What was one of your favorite space stories that you've done for Time Magazine outside of this? You know, I mean, you've, you've done many of them, so. Oh, boy. I think my favorite space story I did for Time Magazine was very early in my tenure there in just my second year there, when the Mars Pathfinder rover landed on Mars on July 4th, 1997. It was our first tiny rover. It was, I mean, you see our big rovers now, they look like SUVs. This was basically right. a microwave oven on a skateboard. It was really <laughs> tiny. Um, and it was on a holiday weekend. It was on the July 4th weekend. The first picture came down from Mars. We were only going to do one page on it. And I was home that weekend and got a call from the editor of the magazine um, who said, you have to come in. You have to spend your Fourth of July weekend here in the office over the next three days. We want to crank out a cover story and we want to do this. We want to play this big. And it was my first experience with being tapped for a breaking news story at time. Um, mm -hmm. I had been used to working for monthly magazines. The metabolism of a monthly magazine is much, much slower than the metabolism of a weekly magazine. A weekly magazine is much more frenetic. And to have to write a cover story of the length that I would have been given a month or two months to do in my previous magazine, to have to do it in 48 or 72 hours, was frenetic and made me feel a soul-crushing mortal fear, of course, that I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, but to be able to do it, to write that first crash cover story in just the course of two days, and to have it be about a good thing, to have it be about mm. a universally unalloyed good, that our mm -hmm. species had landed a movable spacecraft, a roving spacecraft on another planet. To have my first story be such an uplifting story, I think was one of the most gratifying moments I've, I've, I've had in the 25 years I've been there. And that came just two years in. 
So that was a terrifically rewarding piece. Yeah. Obviously set the standard for what was to come too, because you, I mean, you, you certainly, they give you more assignments after that. <laughs> you, you, certainly, you certainly did that one well. So uh, we have a question for Nicole. Um, has the International Space, Damage, uh, Space Station been damaged before? And require an immediate evacuation. Maybe you can mention, you know, the the what was just in the news that that it was drifting um, because of a very tiny damage. But did it ever require any uh, evacuation? Um, thankfully, no. On the International Space Station, that's and that's a good thing. That's a good story. Uh, and even um, in these past few days, where we had the docking of. Um, the Russian MLM or the Nayuka module, which is like a, a you know another a science module um, on the Russian segment, and um, I didn't follow the the detail deals details of it, but you know general understanding, you know the they had some issues before docking, you know resolved those. Um, Docking went well, and then shortly afterwards, thrusters start firing, which then you know is changing the attitude of the station and. Um, I actually read a, I, I'm not going to remember it word for word, but one of the um, flight directors who was on console at the time um, wrote about the three things that happened on, on that shift that had never happened, you know, for him before. And the third one was um, to be thankful that the solar arrays and radiators were still attached to the you know, still attached to the space station, um, which is true. You know, you think about it, Jeff, you guys, you know, you follow along with how we move the station so thoughtfully and meticulously. It's all planned out whenever we do an attitude, you know, adjust the, the, the sh where, where it is in space and how it, and we feather the arrays and we, you know, we make sure everything's in the proper. So for something like that, with these ginormous flapping wings of arrays to just get, you know, kind of spun around, but then I think that speaks, isn't that cool how it speaks to the, you know, to the strength of the station too. And yeah, so cool. And, um, and that the crew, you know, I, I envisioned while this was going on, you know, the crew is doing what they were trained. They're coming together. They're um, accounting for each other. They're responding in a way that's diligent and deliberate that they're, I'm sure they're proud of afterwards, you know, along with the, the mission control team. And, you know, now they're, you know, kind of in that, um, I wouldn't call it a lull, but they're, you know, they, the adrenaline has kind of settled and they're able to use that in a way to, um, you know, figure out why this happened and keep it from happening again. So, um, yeah. Jeffrey, you, you had such a great scene as the piece of equipment was coming towards the, the, the ISS uh, in your novel, and then it doesn't slow down and how they all react to it. That was and that was actually based on a real accident um, in 1997, I believe. Nicole could correct me. Um, an accident with a Progress yep. cargo vehicle with the Soviet Mir, the Russian Mir space station at that point. Wow. And it was um, it was even equally equally great damage was done to the Mir space station. But they did not have to evacuate. They almost had to, though, but they didn't quite have to. I often wonder if something like that did happen on the space station to the degree that it had uh, or that it did on Mir if if we would evacuate now. Yeah. You know, I always kind of question that. How 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 far would we let it go? That's an interesting question. Yeah. May we never have to find out. I don't ever want us to have to know. <laughs> I was going to say it's it's a lot more interesting when you're on the space station than when you're down here. Yeah. <laughs> 
or when you're the family of somebody down here that's on the space station, that's that's never fun. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the uh, viewers uh, wants to know about your experience with Russia, um, because you, you you write about Russians in a wide variety of different ways. So, what's your background on on uh, being familiar with Russians? Is that me? Or yes, yes, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, my work with Russia, um, the the work I've done um, on our year in space series, um, really brought me into close contact with Russia. Um, brought me into close contact with a lot of wonderful Russian people, with a lot of wonderful Russian astronauts. Um, brought me to a lot of great Russian venues. As I mentioned, the Gagarin Cosmonaut mm -hmm. Training Center and the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan and Moscow Mission Control and throughout Moscow. Um, and purely on vacations, I've gone to both Moscow and St. Petersburg and mm -hmm. fallen in love with the country. So never mind the nasty politics between our two countries, never mind mm -hmm. the cat fights that the Kremlin and Washington are always involved in. Um, Russian people are a good and extraordinary people, and all of my interactions with Russians have been fine and friendly and close and warm. And, you know, I feel like the doors were open to me and to our folks at time. And for that, I'm forever grateful. I have some good friends over there. Well, our own our own flirtation uh, with authoritarianism should have uh, told us that maybe maybe we're not completely different uh, than the Russians on on this issue. Um, but we won't go into that. But uh, another issue which uh, people are asking about, of course, is the Amazon uh, situation. And um, there's, of course, uh, a similar situation going on in China with the Uyghurs. And uh, do you think, uh, both of you, can, with this, we can uh, make this the last big topic since this was the topic you chose for your thing, uh, for, for your uh, issue for Wally to try to change. Um, do you think that we can do something about either one of those big issues? And do you think that we're at least partially compromised by what we ourselves did in the 19th century here? That is that we, we're, we're, we did this to the Native Americans. Um, and does that leave us? I know the Chinese bring it up every once in a while and so on and so forth. But does that leave us in a situation where we are not in a strong enough position to influence another country to, to say, well, yes, we know we did it before, but we're not doing it anymore and you can't do it now. It's like, you know, so we, you both can talk to that. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I think we certainly are morally compromised on that. But I think the, the Russians and the Chinese saying, or the Brazilians in the case of the rainforest, and the Chinese saying, yes, well, you did it. I do think there's something for us to say, yes, but we know now that it was wrong and we cannot undo it, but you are yeah. still in a position to undo it. You are still in a position to not do it. Um, I think we have more geopolitical leverage over Brazil simply because Brazil is not as wealthy a country as China is, it's not the global power China is. Um, I think uh, global and um, American and global sanctions can still have some influence over uh, Brazil, but thinking that we can have any kind of leverage over the Chinese, I fear is an illusion. I think the Chinese will do what the Chinese will do. And I think sanctions would um, 
any kind of sanctions we impose are sanctions that hurt us because you can't isolate China from the global economy. China is such a massive power in the global economy that it doesn't need the countries that seek to sanction it. And all that happens is those countries wind up getting hurt. So I fear we have only moral leverage with the Chinese to whatever extent that can shift their behavior. Uh, we do have more geopolitical expertise or geopolitical leverage with um, with the Brazilians. And Nicole, uh, since you were, you can give us the view from the International Space Station to, to finish up here, because um, the, the plot element, which was great, was that Wally would look down and see what was that the Amazon was burning and even get messages up from her niece, uh, daughter, uh, that was down there setting these fires. And as you traveled over the earth like that, um, did any of that ever, you know, cross your mind as you were watching, I'm going across, I mean, because it must be gorgeous to see all the lights of the big cities and all that kind of stuff. So why don't you just give us a little view from space here? Yeah, and I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll um, I, 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 I love the way you're asking that because I think that um, in Holdout too, you know, with, with respect to Wally and the, the storyline there, um, you know, a lot of it was raising awareness, was, was spreading the info, right? You know, sharing it in a way that encouraged action to, to be taken, even if it was pushing on politicians in a way that they might not have liked, but it, you know, it, it brought it up um, to where you couldn't deny um, what was happening. I, I think we're able to do that through our vantage point in space, um, you know, for a number of things. And, you know, whether it's weather or effects on our planet otherwise, and, you know, devastating things like this as well. And um, with the partnerships that we have in place, I think we can extend on that to um, not just how we're bringing science back to Earth, not how we're improving life on here because of the way we can explore off our planet, but because of the way can, we can rally those partnerships you know, in response to the things that are happening down here too. Um, I think that's, that's stronger because of what we do in space. Um, I could talk all night about the view, the view of Earth from space. Um, I sometimes think about it like, you know, it, it's all about the awe and wonder, right? We look at this planet that is stunning, um, that just glows in a way, in kind of this crystal clear, translucent, iridescent way that, um, is, is really impossibly beautiful. I mean, overwhelmingly um, beautiful. And, um, and at the same time, it's kind of like we're watching it all. I think about hurricanes, you know, watching hurricanes move across the ocean towards Florida, where I am, and, you know, from space and how gorgeous that looks from that vantage point, this white, billowy, swirly, you know, mass that's kind of moving across all these blues of the ocean. And, it's like I'm watching it with the mute button on or something like I, I am not experiencing it from the full extent of what, <laughs> you know, what it really is. And I know from underneath there's an experience that's totally different to mine from that, you know, through those windows in space. Um, but I think by seeing that, by sharing that experience, um, that we really are in a position uh, to work together in a way that will deliver, allow us to create this future here on earth that's as beautiful as it looks from space. And and that's what I'm counting on. I'm thankful for Jeff's uh, book, Hold Out, that gives us, gives us hope of that kind of thing too. And through all those really positive and uplifting stories that he continues to share with us um, 
you know, in the science and space world too. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons I love the book is that it it lifts us up through through these challenges and very traumatic things that are going on and allows us to to believe and know that we can overcome them as well. And and that our digital world might make it easier to do. Well, it's one of the things about your novel uh, that was was very interesting. How you have Wally utilize Facebook and you know all, all this digital stuff in order to make things happen. So. Is this something you are just totally familiar with from your YA novels or, or, or has someone been your advisor on how to manipulate the social media? Oh, I am very much a Luddite in the newsroom at time. <laughs> I am, being there 25 years means that I am at the very high end. I have to be carbon dated compared to some of the other kids in the newsroom. So I lean on the youngsters in the newsroom to make me savvy about social media. I don't pretend to try to do it myself. And do you think that do you think that the digital world that's one of the offshoots of the space uh, race and everything else? Do you think that this? I mean, I know that there's people on both ends saying it's driving us apart. And it's driving us together. I think it's given us the tools that we can use, obviously, to to uh, to communicate with each other in a much more effective way. Um, and and are you are you optimistic or pessimistic about which way that's going to lean? Oh boy, uh, I wish I were more optimistic. At the moment, I'm just looking at um, all of the uh, phantasmagorical stories that are online about the dangers of vaccines and the conspiracies about vaccines, and all this fabulism has me a little bit terrified. So talk to me next year at this time when we hope the pandemic is over and the fabulism about the vaccines has ended. And I might be a little more optimistic, but right now I'm more pessimistic. Well, I think I think uh, for a little historical uh, perspective, I think people should go back to uh, the uh, Dr. Strangelove movie uh, with the general who, who worries that the communists are infiltrating his bodily fluids system, yes. his precious bodily fluids. And you, you can see that that whatever this fear is, uh, it's been around for a long time and it just gets a new enemy. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so that was great. Thank you very, very much, uh, both of you. And again, thanks to the Bernard Osher Foundation for uh, supporting this uh, great novel, nice uh, addition to the literature in America. So thank you very much, Jeffrey, and we look forward to your next book. And Nicole, thanks a lot for coming and giving us the, the, uh, the reality check against uh, the whole lot. <laughs> and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.